MSW Media. So, Asha, is Jim Jordan's weaponization committee a problem for the FBI? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Ringaba. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Sue, <laughs> where do we start? Well, one thing I'd let's start with, because I think it's really interesting and I think we're going to have different perspectives on it, is this Washington Post story about disagreements between the DOJ and the FBI. I, I mean, it's very, very rare um, that such disagreements are public. In other words, I, you know, just so people understand, when you are conducting a criminal investigation, uh, DOJ prosecutors uh, kind of lead investigations, at least that's the DOJ perspective, that we lead investigations and direct FBI agents, and there's often disagreements between us. I had more disagreements with the DEA, but there's agreements that the disagreements often with the FBI. But those would get resolved internally. You rarely see news articles about it. And this suggests to me that there's some pretty disgruntled people probably at the FBI who were talking to reporters about it. Yes. So and I think what was unusual is that the disagreements between the DOJ and FBI were kind of flipped. In other words, normally it seems like the FBI wants to be more aggressive and it's DOJ that's pu putting on the brakes. And what the reporting suggested was that at least some officials in the FBI and agents were pushing back against taking um, aggressive steps against Donald Trump specifically uh, in terms of investigating him, uh, even for the Mar-a-Lago um, documents, not even January 6th, the Mar-a-Lago documents, which are kind of straightforward and for which there is ample precedent on how people in similar situations have been treated. And it gets to, I think, a larger issue related to January 6th, which I wrote about in a piece for Just Security, about some concerning things that have emerged um, in terms of the reluctance to investigate Trump for January 6th. And, you know, a lot of tips that were ignored and then even in the aftermath, certain types of slow walking and resistance, which, by the way, was echoed by a report issued um, internally by the Office of Inspector General on the FBI's response to January 6th. So all of this is painting a picture of at least some subset of the FBI either bearing, either having, either sympathizing or having support for Trump and or January 6th, or at the very least being afraid of pursuing investigations because of possible retaliation against them. And we can talk about how that connects to Jim Jordan's subcommittee in a second, but I'll, I'll pause right there. 
Yeah, I do think there's a connection, but this is sort of – I think there's an interesting connection between these two, and we can talk more about that. But I think just as a starting point, I did find – one thing I found very disturbing about that article was the fact that folks at the FBI, FBI agents and, and people who are supervisors there were focused on and concerned about public blowback uh, from the you know Trump camp, from Trump and his allies against them. And you know it really suggests to me that the sort of – campaign disinformation campaign against Comey, Strzok, Page, all all of those uh, uh McCabe. McCabe, thank you. Um worked and it really got the FBI to pull its punches against Trump. It's very concerning to me because you know, look, I am I was a federal prosecutor for a long time. Now I'm on the other side. Uh, the FBI is usually not pulling punches. And like you suggested, usually, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I was the one trying to explain to agents like, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. Actually, it's a lot harder to make our case than you think. And no, it's not. You know, we can't just wrap it up now. And there's a lot more to do. Usually I was like the the. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, the the one who was pr- providing caution, that was usually like you suggested earlier, Asha, the role of the prosecutor there. I'm not used to the FBI uh, being the one like too concerned and worried about going in. And I don't think it's ever appropriate for prosecutors to consider criticism, to consider um, and by the way, I should say I say prosecutors at the FBI as well. Law enforcement should not be con- concerned about, well, how are we going to look in the media? I mean, frankly, that was the Comey problem that got mm-hmm. the FBI in a lot of trouble in the first place. But that's really problematic because it means if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you have a lot of influence, you can get away with things that other people can't. I mean, it's it's just really it's almost corrupt. Yeah, and it does seem like the concerns that were expressed um, and resistance that was expressed by these agents and senior um, officials impacted how that investigation proceeded. That sort of a comp- so the so prosecutors wanted to execute a search warrant initially, and as a result of this resistance to doing that, they sort of settled on this interim measure of issuing a subpoena for the documents to be turned over, um, which kind of said, you know, goes to how the Department of Justice went above and beyond to try to accommodate and be as, you know, non-intrusive as possible for Trump. Um, It also suggests that had Trump just turned over everything at that time, this would all be over right now. Um, and what was amazing, the second amazing thing was after that subpoena was um, executed, I guess, or, you know, after, after uh, they got whatever documents initially back, there were some agents that were like, okay, case closed. We believe him. We think that he gave, and this is someone who has lied over 30,000 times in four years. I mean, in the FBI, we call that a clue. That maybe, you know, you don't want to take everything at face value. I mean, these are people who are trained in detecting deception. um, And they were willing to just accept assurances that that was all he had uh, and wanted to close the case, which was astonishing to me. 
Yeah, I have to say it's just so incongruent with the way that they usually operate. Um, and, and I'll say this, you know, w- when you're on the other side of it, it can be very frustrating. You have a client who you think is innocent or you're, you represent a witness you think is telling the truth and they're so convinced that she's lying. And it's like, come on, you know, um, and here uh, every reason to be concerned, suspicious about this. And the FBI wants to pull their punches. Um, you know, I will say a lot of when I uh, tweeted about this, a lot of the comments from my uh, followers were like, hey, Christopher Ray is ruining the FBI and all the FBI agents are in the pocket of Trump. I, I think those are overstated. I'm curious what your thoughts are, because you're a lot cl- you're an FBI alum and a lot closer to it to me. But I do think that there are some agents. And, you know, of course, we had certain agents that may have been leaking to Rudy Giuliani before the 2016 election, for example. Uh, I do think that um, there is definitely uh, agents are mostly Republican uh, and they always have been. Uh, and so I do think there's some element of that. But I think it's a little overstated. Yeah, I, I don't think Christopher Ray is in the pocket of Trump. I think Christopher Ray may be kind of reacting to a more acute degree to the same things that Comey was. Remember the whole leak, you know, Trumplandia leakers and this idea that there was going to be a mutiny if he didn't reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton. There is definitely some, you know, some subset that are full on, you know, Trumplandia. And I think that Christopher Ray has been, um, overly, I I don't know, hesitant, um, cautious, like he has not been aggressive after January 6th, I think partly because he's afraid of part of the workforce that he thinks are going to, like, I don't know what he thinks they're going to do, which, you know, connects to some of the stuff that's happening with Jim Jordan's committee. Um, But, you know, let's remember that after January 6th, Christopher Ray didn't even show up for the press conference. Yeah about it two days later or whatever it was two or three days later i mean i remember at the time being very shocked about that because you know if it were a major foreign terrorist attack um or frankly if it had been a domestic terrorist attack that was not you know a bunch of white people wearing maga hats (laughs) um i i believe that he would have been there making a very strong and forceful statement so it's we see this sort of um, definitely, I think, a form of catering to th- this political subset, both in the public and I think in the workforce. I would probably not go so far as to say that he's, you know, in Trump's pocket in the same way that some of it, like that Bill Barr or, you know. Cash Patel or something, yeah. Grinnell yeah, yeah. or, you know, all these other people. Were. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like I said, I think it's really overstated. I think people leap to conclusions and I can understand that people are frustrated. But, yeah, I I actually think the way you're describing it is sort of the way that a lot of people have talked about Garland, right? There's been a lot of people saying, look, Garland yes. is concerned about politicization, so he just wants to stay away from anything that relates to politics. And I think, you know, you could argue the same is true of Ray. You know, you mentioned Jim Jordan's committee. Obviously, we want to talk about that. I want to ask you about that. And I think, you know, what's interesting and ironic, right? And that's the reason that I think it was good to start with that Washington Post piece is, while the underlying reporting suggests that, if anything, the FBI is pulling punches to help Trump, the... the yeah. 
um, disinformation campaign coming out of Fox News and Jim Jordan, who I just kind of regard him and some of those folks as essentially an arm of Fox News or in league with them. There's this disinformation campaign to suggest that the FBI is actually you know, trying to frame Trump or trying to go work against MAGA or whatever. Right. And so this gets to the weaponization, uh, the select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, um, which is a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee headed by Jim Jordan. And he has for months been intimating that he just has a league of whistleblowers waiting in the wings to come and just blow the lid off of rampant FBI abuse. And he's likened his committee to the church committee, which was um, a storied congressional committee from 1975 uh, headed by Frank Church. Um, there was also... Uh, it was a senator, and then there was also a House committee called the Pike Committee that investigated intelligence abuses by the FBI, CIA, NSA, and led to many of the major reforms that we have in place now, as well as the oversight committees um, for the House and Senate uh, intelligence committees. So it turns out – so uh, the, to the extent that we were talking about this subset, this sort of extreme MAGA subset that – maybe in the FBI, um, they are manifesting for sure in these so-called whistleblowers who um, have, you know, been fired or suspended um, basically for uh, refusing to do their jobs, um, it seems to me, as far as I can tell, for when it comes to investigating January 6th. And so far, Jordan has not produced these witnesses publicly, but at least three of them have been interviewed by Democrats on the committee. And the Democrats released a 316-page report outlining what their preliminary findings are on these witnesses, which is that they, A, don't meet the definition of whistleblower, which is a legal definition where you have to expose actual misconduct or violations of the law. And then you get certain protections under the law. Um, but that often they don't even have firsthand knowledge of the things that they're alleging. Um, they traffic in conspiracy theories, uh, including COVID conspiracy theories. And one of them was even giving interviews to Russian state propaganda outlets while he was an FBI employee uh, to Russia Today and, and, and Sputnik. Um, so the whole thing is sketchy and P.S., they're all funded by one Cash Patel, yeah. who, is, who not only gave them cash money, but also <laughs> uh, is paying for their lawyers and even helped one of them find employment at a conservative, uh, I wouldn't call it a think tank, but some sort of conservative uh, organization that's run by Mark Meadows. So the whole thing is really, really sketchy yeah so just speaking i mean as somebody who i rep i've represented whistleblowers you know that that is what a whistleblower is is somebody like you said you know knows about a violation of law or policy or something along those lines and usually very bravely brings that to uh the attention of authorities and gets protections as a result because that person has to be concerned about retaliation 
Uh, at least that's how it is often in the government context. Sometimes, of course, there are whistleblowers in other contexts, like in private companies, where they'll go forward to the SEC. You'll hear about whistleblower awards and things like that. That's a little different. But in this context, it's all about, you know, is the government breaking the law? Is the government violating its own policies? Like you said, I mean, that's not what we are seeing here. I really view these uh, folks a lot like I view the Weaponization Committee as sort of a way of serving up um, you know, clips for Fox News to try to lend some meat in the bones to conspiracy theories. I mean, from what little I've watched at the Weaponization Committee, I watched it a couple different times. It just seemed like kind of a panoply of conspiracy theories, Fox News conspiracy theories. And, you know, one of, the, you know, something about living in that world and being part of that um, ecosystem is that if you have, even like a little shred of something that you can hang your hat on, it sounds like there's some weight to it. Like, well, I heard there was an FBI agent saying there's a lot of problems there at the FBI or, you know, well, in Congress, they're investigating this. And it, it, it lends a weight to what otherwise um, would be. I mean, they still are conspiracy theories, but nonetheless, I think it can give supporters some confidence or feeling that there's something more to it. Yeah, I call it information laundering. Information laundering. Wow. Yes. So you take the conspiracy theory and then you essentially launder it through some sort of legitimate process or you allow it to be aired through something that has credibility. Um, and then that sort of lends it the legitimacy. And that's exactly what you're talking about. We've seen it before in the lead up to the first impeachment. There was a lot of information laundering happen, happening by the likes of Ron Johnson that was, you know, trying to bring into the record these, you know, whatever, Burisma, Hunter Biden, you know, all that stuff that um, that Trump was trying to get Zelensky to investigate um, Biden for. They were trying to uh, make that into a thing. It reminds me of um, Mean Girls, you know, like stop trying to make Fetch happen. <laughs> um, they were trying to make Fetch happen. And I think that... That is what Jim Jordan is trying to do. I think to your point, what one of the problems is, is that these conspiracy theories have like are coherent and make a lot of sense if you live in that bubble because you hear it all the time and you have all these tidbits that are like mashed together and you're hearing it repetitively and um to the people that you're in communication with, everybody knows all of these details that all fit together, you know, the pedophile ring that, you know, Trump is taking down or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, but once it gets exposed into real life, they fall apart. And I think we've seen that happen with the Twitter files um, hearings where it turns out that the only people who are pressuring Twitter was the Trump administration. Um, and I think that this is what's going to happen with Jim Jordan's committee. It's just not going to hold up uh, to the to the light of day. Well, you know, one thing that I always uh, say as a trial lawyer, if I had to say like my secret sauce is that usually the simple story uh, beats the complex story. So usually try, I try to make my story, my themes, everything that I'm doing to a jury uh, simpler uh, than the other side. Even if my story is more complicated, I find a way to make it simpler. 
And I think one thing that makes those uh, conspiracy theories so appealing to people is they often are a very simple story. Like Trump's always being investigated for things all the time, and he's always running into legal trouble. And so it's like, well, it's they're all after him, right? It's like a very simple explanation. It's not like, well, actually, he seems to do all of these really bad things all the time, which obviously would kind of contradict their prior assumptions and their their biases. But also, it's easier to, for someone to believe like, oh, there must be after him, right? And it sort of fits into, you know, kind of prejudices that people have. And I think, you know, what this does is it tries to lend enough uh, credibility to that to make it plausible. So very unfortunate, um, but something that um, I think is here to stay in the consequence of the last election. It's a consequence of losing the House. Yeah, and I would encourage people to read the Democrat staff uh, report on uh, these witnesses. Um, even just there's a five-page executive summary at the beginning because what – what they're doing, I think, is essentially what what we need to do with disinformation, which is to pre-bunk narratives. So there's always first mover advantage um, to getting out information. And so what Democrats are doing is basically saying, like, here are some facts you need to know about these so-called whistleblowers. Um, and the more that people are educated on that um, and the more that that gets circulated and highlighted – the less traction that Jim Jordan's, you know, whatever, um, selective framing or what, however he's going to present it is going to work. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Renato, last week we talked a little bit about uh, the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News for defamation. And last night we had a new filing with, with some more bombshells. And I'm wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I, it was really remarkable. I have to say, Asha, it really helped me appreciate um, what the legal team accomplished on Dominion's behalf. It's really, speaking as somebody who litigates cases all the time, it's actually quite remarkable what they were able to accomplish. Uh, and I don't you know, know if that's apparent to everyone. I'll just say that you know, First Amendment lawsuits are very, very difficult to make, and, and particularly when they're involving issues of public concern because the standard is so high. You have to prove that uh, someone either knew what they were saying was false or they had reckless disregard for the truth. And, you know, reading not just the the um, uh, transcripts, but also um, looking at the communications, there's there's no question that Dominion has um, evidence to, that can prove that. I think, you know, the fact that they filed Dominion filed a motion for summary judgment, you know, that may seem to you like, well, well, so, well, actually, usually that's the defense that's filing the motion for summary judgment saying, ah, there's not enough here. We don't want a trial. It's pretty rare for the plaintiff to do that. And it's really a sign of confidence here. And I can see why they're confident because you literally have Rupert Murdoch saying, 
you know, I didn't believe this stuff. I thought it was false. And the defenses that Fox are, is left with and, and really what I took away from it is like, well, all of these hosts uh, believed that, you know, knew that what they were doing was false. But it wasn't the higher ops or it wasn't the head of the company. So, like, it's like some factory worker knew they were, you know, selling defective cars, but it never got up to the CEO, that sort of thing. Um, and and it's, it's a very, very difficult defense for them. Um, and, and I think it was just, it, you know, it was, it was quite remarkable. Is that their defense? Yeah. Because it sounds like it was going all the way to the top. I mean, they. That is their defense. In fact, Rupert Murdoch in his deposition sort of was taking a line where he said, um, you know, well, some of the hosts, you know, were, were promoting this, but not the network in their view. Now that's, that there's a, a, a very good evidence to the contrary. In fact. Right. Because the CEO was like basically in on this and encouraging. Correct. And, and also, Mur you know, yes. And also, um, you know, th there was like, for example, on the first, I think the first problematic segment they had was a Maria Bartiromo segment. And then there was some communications about like, oh boy, we need to dial that back. And then they just doubled down on it. In other words, there's some really good evidence on that, but nonetheless, that's sort of the line that Fox is taking because they don't have a lot to work with. And I mean, one thing that, you know, really struck me, Asha, is why hasn't Fox settled? Yeah, I'm, that's confusing to me, too, because it's just more bad stuff keeps coming out. Yeah, so that's something I've been doing some digging on and talking to people about it. Basically, the kind of my my sense of things. I mean, first of all, just so everyone understands, the damages here are immense. Okay, we're talking well over a billion dollars in damages that Dominion's asking for, and that can have a multiplier on top of it. Like, and you could get double or triple that. Okay, so very significant amount of damages here. But Fox, you know, so Fox would ordinarily have a, a, an interest in settling. And by the way, an interest in settling before this filing. In other words, this would ordinarily be a very a kind of an inflection point in a case where the defense would say, hey, before all of this stuff gets aired to the public, let's settle. The fact that they didn't really what it suggests to me is that they if they admit fault here and if they admit that they did something wrong, which is probably what it would take in order to get this thing settled, it, it would ruin their business plan. It would ruin their business model for their customers. They're very much put in a box. Well, it, it would ruin their business plan. And I, I am assuming or I suspect that some settlement would involve them having to correct their statements on air right. to the audience that they are so worried about alienating, right? So they would have to go on air. I mean, you can tell me more about how what this would look like, but I'm assuming like, you know, 10 times a day and be like, you know, the claims that we made about Dominion voting systems was false and there was no election fraud. And, uh, you know, the election was won by Joe Biden. I mean, they would be forced to say that. Yeah, uh, yes, they would. And in fact, a, a good... Um analog says if you look at what happened to Newsmax. So Newsmax, not as well funded as Fox News, they folded fairly early on, and they did have um, statements that were read uh, on the air, and they were cutting people off. I mean, you can find the clips online on social media where it's actually kind of, kind of humorous, where you have Michael Lindell and other types of people going on Newsmax, and, and the hosts are like, whoa, 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 we got to shut this down. Because actually, in the First Amendment, one of the things also that Fox tries to do is they're like, well, we weren't 
promoting this. These personalities that were on the air were promoting this. We were just this was a, an air a public an issue of public concern because important. Yeah, it was exactly important. People were saying this, but you know, you can get the first time you can get away with that. You know, and say, okay, well, we put Trump on and he said this. But if you know that somebody's going to be saying things that you know are false and you give them a platform and you don't, you know, push against that and you don't explain to the audience that that's false, um, you are liable for that. And there's a lot of case law on that. And so it, that doesn't really help Fox News at all. But I think that's another sort of distinction, just so people understand the distinctions there. But, you know, in terms of, you know, what happened here, it's, it's remarkable because, and I think a couple of things really helped Dominion here that they gave them some advantages over other lawsuits, it, it, you know, in the defamation place space is that, first of all, this happened, a lot of this was right during the pandemic. So a lot of conversations that might have otherwise been oral were actually written down mm-hmm. because Murdoch was off in his estate in Australia, wherever he was. That's so that's such a good point, because I was wondering, like, why is there such an extensive paper trail here? This seems really dumb. Like, why are they like, you know, we're totally lying, but we're going to air it anyway. I mean, you have all these like smoking gun emails, um, even to the extent of the legal standard is reckless disregard for the truth. And I think there's even a text or email from Tucker Carlson that says it would be incredibly reckless to just to, to say this on air. And it's sort of like. Okay, so you you're admitting, um, but anyway, th- that's a good point that they were doing this because they were effectively remote at that time. Yeah, and that I, I'm told that had a very significant impact uh, on this case. Yeah, very significant impact. Another thing that would had a big impact is Dominion was on top of this in real time and issuing preservation notices. <laughs> And so really putting Fox in a spot where, you know, and so Fox, if you look at the communications, Fox was in this tough spot because Trump, if you remember at the time, was promoting Newsmax and whatever the other OANN and all of that. Mm -hmm. So they were they didn't want to lose their audience. They felt like they were in this box there. But at the same time, you know, they're like they're remote. They've got these preservation notices. And so you literally have. In many ways, I mean, this may be, you know, the most, uh, you know, the largest award we've had in First Amendment history. Um, And it's coming at a time, by the way, legally, when conservatives in the Supreme Court are saying, we need to dial back New York Times versus the Sullivan. Defamation. They need to lower the standard. <laughs> because you can't make even... a defamation case. The the, uh, yeah. the 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 argument has been the First Amendment swung too far in that direction. You can never succeed as a plaintiff, so we need to dial it back. This may be the prime counterexample. Like, nope, when people are real liars, uh, yes, you can and get a lot of money out of them. Yeah, and what Renato is referring to here is that for – that for your ordinary person, um, the defamation standard is lower, that it has to be like knowingly saying, knowingly saying something that is false um, and that it uh, results in damage to your reputation or economic um, detriment. But for public figures um, where you want to encourage like a free flow of ideas and debate, There is a higher standard where you have to demonstrate actual malice. Um, And the idea is that you don't want someone with a lot of influence um, to be able to start suing people for defamation and, you know, chill the speech of people who might be criticizing them. 
would you say that which, that's which right? happens yeah <laughs> which happens even like we saw trump sues everyone under the sun or they claim he claims that he's gonna sue everyone under the sun even despite that standard and so you could have a situation where or where you know everyone from social media uh personalities to uh radio stations are pulling their punches against trump because he's gonna sue you and so the the, the purpose of it is you know, is literally to do that. And actual malice is the standard I mentioned earlier. You have to prove that the person either knew what they were saying was false or re had reckless disregard for the truth. And in many states, there's there's laws, anti-slap laws, which essentially also say that if you file a defamation suit, you have to pay the legal fees if it fails. Yeah. Uh, be, you know, and if it's a, if the judge, there's it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But you know, the judge can essentially. Make it so you you know the uh, the party bringing that even has to pay your legal fees. So it really is very friendly to the First Amendment. But this is the perfect storm where you not only have um, all this documentary evidence of people who knew they were lying and knew they were peddling in lies and promoting lies, but also a plaintiff that has significant damages. That's the other thing, Asha. It's often very very difficult in a defamation case to prove you know, uh, damages, right? Like, let's say, you know, you were being defamed by Fox News, which I, you have probably been I at some been. point or another. You have been. But, like, how do we prove the damage? Like, maybe it improves your reputation. They put some expert on the stand is like, oh, for Asha, getting attacked by Fox News helps her. Um, so in this case, Dominion's entire business plan, what, and it was a substantial company and substantial amount of investment, their business plan was to convince municipalities and, and, they and lost states contracts. and others. Right. The, 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 the whole business plan is we're this trustworthy system for running voting. We want to convince political bodies to, to you know, pay for our product. And so obviously destroying the trust in their product and making a, politi a political hot potato destroys their entire business. Right. Though Fox is arguing that they haven't suffered any damages. Yeah, of course. But uh, I think Dominion's got a good argument there. Um, I, I, you know, there will be some cutback on damages. Uh, you know, there's a thing in courts don't like like to sort of um, peel back very excessive awards. So, in other words, if you get, you know, it may very well be that someone stole your invention and you know built a, a massive hundred billion dollar business out of it, but you're not going to get that full amount in a in a court case. And here. Even though the damage to Dominion may be, you know, five billion dollars or one, you know, whatever, you know, I, I think they they claim it's it's like think one point six, and let's say yeah. you might have it trebled or quadrupled or what it quintupled. You know, ultimately that that may get pared down some, but nonetheless, I mean, it's going to be a very substantial amount of money. Yeah, let the games begin. And I my favorite part, by the way, is the the text that was revealed last night where Tucker Carlson talks about how much he hates Donald Trump. Yeah. That one I love. Didn't you love the time machine person with uh what's her face with, uh, with uh, the Kraken uh, lawyer, like she, the, the woman who went back and her, the, the woman, her source for the dominion thing was someone. Oh who yeah. Was like, who was like somebody who was like reborn or something. Some yeah. It was like, weird yeah. Spiritual, yeah. It was like Kang the Conqueror or Marty McFly or whoever sometimes. Oh yeah. 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 She had gone back in time. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was really wacky, but I will be interested to see if Trump turns on. I think he's been tweeting uh, or, or truthing <laughs> about um, Fox in the last week or so uh, some critical things about Rupert Mur Murdoch. And I'll be interested to see, cause you know, one thing that triggers Trump is people saying bad things about him. 
So um, I'm curious. I, I'm sure Tucker Carlson has been on the phone with Trump groveling and claiming that, you know, they got it wrong or they misattributed or whatever, um, because otherwise I will expect to see statements from Trump slamming Tucker and, and Fox News generally. Wow. Well, Which will be really fun to watch. I yeah, definitely get some pop popcorn. popcorn for that. There you go. Get some popcorn. <laughs> so speaking of popcorn, Renato, um, I'm curious. I'm wondering if we can have a little confessional here on what kind of trashy TV shows we watch. And I'm asking because I have recently been alerted to 90 day fiance. Oh, we, we tried. Um, so we watched a few episodes of that. I, we, we, we thought it was really good, but then we didn't follow through. Like, I don't know what happened with that, but that's a really good one. That's supposedly very good. Yeah. We, I started with season one. Um, it's, it's sketchy and gives me sex trafficking. Vibes. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if I want to keep watching it, but Basically, um, I feel like my gateway drug was Bachelor, which I hadn't watched in like, you know, 20 years. And then last spring, I started watching um, the current season and somehow got sucked in. And then that led me to Bachelor in Paradise. And then that led me to Love is Blind. Okay. Um, We're big Love is Blind people. Love is Blind Brazil. Love is Blind Japan. And so I am now just fully in the shame spiral of trashy dating. Shows. Okay, so we do a lot of the trashy dating shows because my, especially like my wife's like, look, let's just watch something fun and like not complicated and not you know scary yes. or intense. It's mind candy, yeah, and, or depressing. Yeah, exactly. Like let's just watch something lighthearted. And so we watch that stuff. We we just saw. You know, I know we're late in this. A Love Is Blind reunion or whatever they call it. Very interesting, right? You, I, would, I didn't see some of the twist. I'm not going to give anything away, but I didn't see some of the twists coming at the very end of that. If you, I'm sure you've watched that, Asha. Oh, yeah. Already, that was a twist. That was a twist, right? Yes. I didn't see that coming. I was shocked. I like actually was like, oh, my God. And then I had to like, that person go, like that, get online. and that to the other one? Yes. I was like, what? Okay, so that was like a, a twist there. What? <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, well, Bachelor, you know, I always thought, one thing, talk about creepy vibes. So one thing I was, I remember watching the first season of The Bachelor 20-something years ago and thinking it was so weird because – the guy is like hooking up with like multiple women at the same time on a show. And then there's this like rose and romance and love BS that's sort of like put on top of it because like, is he really having romantic love with all these people that he's like hooking up with at the same time? Like, it's just kind of weird, right? Like, isn't it weird to be like, Oh, I love you knowing that like he's saying the same thing to like all these other people that you interact with all the time like it's super weird right it's so weird it is it's like sister wives or something <laughs> yes have you watched that I, show? I wouldn't be able to do it i'm not i would not be able to do it i've not watched that I, show by yeah. the way sister wives have you watched that I haven't watched it either. I'm just I'm I'm just assuming that it's about people sharing. Yes, it's like a plural marriage person? thing, but I think it's sister wife now yeah. because the like all the rest of them oh. like ditched the guy is what I read. <laughs> 
So there you go. But but yeah, no, but I definitely um yeah, I definitely we definitely love that stuff. We love all sorts of goofy stuff though. Like, I mean, one of our favorite uh, Netflix shows was Is It Cake? Have you seen that? No. Oh my god. That's like maybe the best show ever. Is it cake? Basically what it is is you you <laughs> these they have these chefs, pastry people who make cakes that look like real objects. So they'll have like, let's say I'm talking in a microphone now. They'll have a bunch of microphones lined up. One of them's, but one of them's a cake. So a dessert imposter. Yes, one of them's a cake. And like you, you're five feet away, ten feet away. Can you guess? Is it cake? Which one is cake? And like that's part of the thing. And then like they're creating the chefs create different things. They'll they'll be like, okay, you've got to create different things. And the the uh, the then they'll have somebody have to guess which one is cake it's super fun it's yeah. way better than okay i might have to watch that we've we've watched cake wars here my kids and i we watch a lot of the cooking shows so cake wars um we very into kids baking show okay all right that's um, no kids baking show like it's fun to watch and then i feel guilty because i find some of the kids annoying and then i'm like <laughs> just kids like no <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, but, but, but they're actually very talented. Um, so it's kind of cool to watch them make all these things. Um, we've watched, uh, oh my gosh, what are, what are some of the other ones? The one with Alton Brown, Cutthroat Kitchen. Oh, wow. Food Truck Wars. See, I've done lots of, I've done, I mean, there's all kinds. I've done less of those. We've done, have you done, um, there was, there was one where it's like, um, it, it was like it, it, where you had to choose between a wedding and a mortgage, like your wedding and a, like you had to choose. You get a free. They they bought you either a free home or the wedding of your dreams. And you had to make a choice. Have you seen that one? I vaguely remember. Yeah, this. and it was like it was like they did this whole thing. They have like a realtor and then like a wedding planner, and they're like, we can throw you the wedding of your dreams. And I'm like, we'll do this, and it's like like you can have this over the top, you know, fifty thousand dollar wedding, or you can get the down payment on the house. And my wife is a realtor, so she's always like the house. She always wanted the person to choose the house, yeah, I, and I'm I like, oh, yeah, I get it. But it's like funny because you're like, I've tried to figure out like how foolish are these people to blow, you know, their life savings, uh, or well, it's not like like this this windfall on one day, and like it, the half of the people do. Like that's always like an interesting. That was like one of our one of our ones for a, oh, you know, another one is the the the. Um, um married at first sight that's like we've watched like a bazillion seasons of that where like these supposed experts like decide who you're going to marry and it's like an arranged marriage like you show up at the wedding day and you walk down the aisle and you've never met the guy before but you have to you you take the the vows and you're like okay this guy's really ugly but i gotta roll roll with it oh that's super interesting Do, do they get paid no they have to sign i think prenups before the show but no, you have to get a divorce after too. No, it's it's actually. It, oh my god! Well, their th- the argument is like, look, if you're bad at p- your pickers, bad, then you know you are going to have this panel of experts that are going to make a decision. They've got like a therapist, they've got a sex therapist, they've got a, a minister. They all kind of like get together and they they you know are like, oh, we really like you know whatever you know Jane and John. These two would be a good match and this and that. And you literally just walk down the aisle, you meet this guy, and you have to marry him. And then it's usually, like, some of them, like, are clearly not into each other, but they have to, like, live together and go through the motions to be on this honeymoon. Some of them, I mean, occasionally they do work out, and they they stay married, and they have a bunch of kids and stuff. But it's it's got a better, I think it's got a better success rate than The Bachelor. Um, because usually the people are... Oh, The Bachelor record is hard. Well, right, because they're all, like, super hot 
like it's like hot successful people whatever it is like who are just want to yeah. be on tv whereas these people are kind of yeah they look kind of more normal you know like at, like normal people and they're like because you have to get married so it's like you have to really be into it it's usually people who've had like bad luck with getting married for some reason like you're usually like there's some problem i don't with know you. they should do 90 day fiance apparently you can just like go online and find someone and ship them over so do these people speak english the 90 day fiance people like do, like you know do you get somebody who can sometimes and sometimes not like you need like you use like google translate to talk to I, your wife or I, something. let me tell you the first season this dude brought this brazilian woman over who was incredibly beautiful but was looked really young and did not speak a lot of English. And I'm just like, I don't know how I feel about this. This just feels weird. It seems to me. exploitive. It's like the people who. So maybe, I mean, I, I might need to watch more seasons because if it's all dudes bringing women in from other countries, like that's not, I don't know. That's just going to make me uncomfortable. I need to watch that. Yeah. It just seems super exploitive, right? It's just like, hey, these people have very little in terms of material goods, like being taken advantage right. of by men in the United States who want to prey on young women. Now, look, I did, after watching season one, um, look all these people up. I mean, because the first season was like 10 years ago or something. Uh -huh. They're all still married. They have kids. Well, yeah, because like one of the people. They look happy on Instagram. Because your alternative is to go back to like whatever, right? Angola and like, you know, live in poverty. So, <laughs> or whatever. It's like, okay, we're going to. Right, right, Russia. Right. You it's know, like, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. It's like, okay, you could live in this village without running water, or you can be married to this, this really old, ugly dude. And, you know, you get to, you know, play Nintendo Switch or whatever. So I just. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like marriage is not, in my view, uh, uh, in and of itself, like uh, you win a prize, right? Like you want a, a marriage that's happy and fulfilling and all of that stuff. I agree. M-S-W-Media.